What we do here is go back, 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 back. It does no service to creating value for people where I came from if I won't say where I came from. And so nobody thought any thought this movie was going to work, and it did. One of my greatest struggles as a journalist is that I'm an emotional person and I'm a sensitive person. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. 10,000 No's is built on the premise that hearing stories of struggle from people who most of us would consider to be successful is a way for the rest of us to realize that we're not alone. If you've already subscribed on iTunes and you like what you hear, please share it with others. You can take a screenshot of your phone while you're listening, post it on your social media, tag at Maddie Dell on Instagram or at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook, email it to friends, or just let people know it exists and how you found it. If you can leave an iTunes review, even better. That really helps. Either way, I appreciate you listening, and I hope you're as inspired by my guests as I am. I think there's something when when you're open about your own life. That's sometimes when the best things happen. Welcome to this episode of 10,000 No's. My guest today is former speechwriter to Vice President Al Gore, Eli Addy whose big no arrived in the form of one of the most dramatic presidential elections in history in 2000, which turned him toward Hollywood and the West Wing, where I met him. I'll keep the intro brief because we get into detail about our connection and we riff for a while about writing, story, and branching into new directions. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, I'm here with my friend Eli Addy, uh, a writer, uh, a really interesting story really goes with the the whole theme of the podcast of 10,000 knows. I think just career trajectory is, is pretty crazy. We'll get into that, the whole, uh, sure. How you got out here and, and really he in, in a way is responsible for me being in LA because you wrote my character Bram on the West wing. This is true. And that this is, is the true. job that eventually moved us, uh, out to the West Coast. So um, thank you for having me. <laughs> it was a great pleasure. And you were so great in that role. And uh, uh, wore the peculiar name of Bram uh, very well. <laughs> Bram Howard. They gave me a last name, you know, several episodes in. Yeah, I don't think I came up with the last name. Yeah, I, I I, Although maybe I did because I'm trying to remember whether on the West Wing, you ha- some shows you can't name a character, just Jeff. You have to give it a last name and then they it's run through legal channels, you know, to make sure there isn't like one person named Jeff who's also a, you know, samurai or whatever that you're writing. <laughs> right. And uh, and I always sort of, I wonder why you can't just use the first name because then obviously it's not anybody else. And if right. you don't hear the last name, but. Uh, yeah, it was like at some point they they had to say Bram Howard, they, they had to say my full name and then there I was. Uh, and like, you discover things like you discover that I was from South America at one point, like way. Right. Like, yeah. Really? Well, you know, it's our our mutual friend and colleague, uh, Brad Whitford, once said a long time ago uh, that the thing about series television, as opposed to a play or a movie where you're given the complete works of your character up front, like every word and every thought that they'll ever utter you have in one place with series TV. You just don't know. The writers may be suddenly looking to juice things up and then they may decide, you know, you have a sister who died in a fire when you yeah. were a kid, whatever. And I remember Brad saying, I think on some panel, I was just in the audience, that uh, you don't 
you the difference between you know series TV and, and movies or plays is that you kind of have to be played, let yourself be played rather than just playing the character. Yeah, you have to. You can't have your head filled with all that backstory because it may change. Yeah, exactly. Well, did I ever tell you the? Jo- I don't know if we've talked about this, the. I'm going to drop a name, but the Joey Pants story. Joe Pantano. No, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I think I met him once at a party. He's Couldn't great. have been a nicer he guy, is, but I was he, such a fan of his um, work. Yeah, he's great, and he and he's a total character, and he. At one point, um, I'd see, this was like season four. I think it was the season that I did the majority of my stuff on Sopranos was, um, was uh, he, all of a sudden he had uh, a Coke problem. And he's like, fucking David. All of a sudden, I, he's like, I'm two seasons in. I got a fucking That's Coke hilarious. problem. And I was like, yeah, but you know what? I totally believe it. The writer saw, you, you know, your character is a scumbag. And I, and I get like, it's, it's not a stretch that you yeah. have been doing Coke all this time. And, and he, you, you know, the, the writers, as you know, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into it. will pick up on what the character, what the actor sure. is giving For off sure. and then write to that. Absolutely. So no, I just right. remember that was a good lesson in, in that. And I feel like I've, uh, you know, the nature of a lot of the roles I've done where that's what I've, I've come to realize if you put something out there as an actor, you kind of do your preparation and you kind of have a take on the character. You can, you, you throw stuff out there and a lot of times writers will pick up on it and kind of write in that direction. I mean, good series television, you're crazy if you're not watching the actors, hanging out with the actors as much as you can, seeing what they do, seeing what they're like, even off the set, because that's your medium. Yeah. You know, they're your they're raw your material. Yeah. It's it's like uh, you know, you didn't you 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 buy a tube of paint, you know, to do your painting and you just realize how vivid the red is and you can use it in a way you didn't expect. That's what your actors are. Yeah. Um, but I always remember uh and I've generally worked places not always, but generally where the writers and the producers are very respectful of the actors and fairly inclusive of them, but uh reading in some, I guess it was a Vanity Fair oral history of The Sopranos where David Chase was telling the story about himself that some actor came up to him after a table read of The Sopranos and basically was concerned about something in the script that their character did or said and said, I just don't think this is something my character would do. And David Chase said, uh, who says it's your character? <laughs> I think you've told me that story. Which, I which uh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Uh, which, you know, I, I know a lot of actors would be very upset to be told that, but uh, yeah. I don't subscribe to that view. I think, yeah, I think you have yeah, to I think turn, the, turn the, best, the ownership over. It's a joint. It, it's, yeah, it's, I was going to say, in the best case scenario, I think it's a real collaboration, which, you know, there's that story, but then there's also, I don't know that that's how he operated because there's also the story that he had. Uh, Tony Soprano in his mind as a completely different character and Gandolfini came in and auditioned and he said just blew him out of the water he said oh "Oh my god he showed me things in this character that I didn't realize were even a possibility so but I also but I also you know and that's I've heard that too and I've read that I mean obviously you knew all these people but but uh I just watching some interviews with Gandolfini, it was very clear that especially in the last few seasons of the show, David Chase made himself kind of inaccessible to Gandolfini and didn't really want to be meeting with him and talking to him about the character or or hearing his feedback. And I think their relationship was not a good one. Uh, And I think, you know, and and, because I saw some interview with Gandolfini where, where it was, I think it was inside the actor's studio and it was after the show was off the air. And he was, he was sort of acknowledging that now he understood 
all the decisions that, you know, David Chase had to make and all the things he had to do and why probably he couldn't sit around and, and talk yeah. endlessly about the character. But he said at the time he was very hurt by it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, yeah, you don't realize sometimes we don't realize on our side of the table if we've, if we've never been on the other side, uh, you know, all that's going into it decision wise and then vice versa. Sometimes people don't realize what the actor's going through. For sure. Um, let me take everybody back because um, I, I find it, your story and we'll get into as as many or as as few stories as you want to about your kind of overcoming things. But the, the huge one that stands out is how you got to be in Hollywood. Yeah. If we could kind of go back to sure. the late 90s and talk about what you used to do. You had a whole other well, life. So I... I I never knew what I wanted to do for a living is the truth. And, and, and weirdly, I still sometimes feel like I don't know what I want to do for a living. Um, although I really enjoy what I'm doing now. But I, when I got out of college, I, I didn't, I think, I, I think I decided somewhere in the middle of college that I wanted to be a lawyer simply because I saw a lot of kind of smart, interesting people around me who were sort of social science-y types, like to read the newspaper and, you know, not, you know, good at science and math and, you know, which is a good description of me, uh, wanting to be lawyers. Just because it seemed like if you're a, you know, hardworking generalist, that was something you could do. So I was headed toward law school for, for a lot of college, and I never thought deeply about what a lawyer does. And, uh, so when I got out of, I actually didn't apply to law school as a college senior because I hadn't, my grades hadn't been great my sophomore year of college. And I wanted to get into a good law school. And I thought my senior year grades will help my GPA. So I'm going to actually wait and uh, take that year off. And I applied to kind of an internship program with um, New York City government. Uh, and I ended up working for New York City government uh, after I graduated from college. And then I, you know, took the LSAT and applied to law school kind of on the side. And I got into a bunch of law schools. And, but, but by the time I had gotten into law school, I was out in the working world and really enjoyed the freedom uh, and kind of the lifestyle and, and realized I never really had wanted to be a lawyer that it was all just about wanting to stay in school and do what other people seemed to be doing. So I, I kind of said goodbye to law school, although actually I took a slow route to saying goodbye to law school. I, I accepted a place at a law school. I deferred for one year. Oh, you did? Then I deferred for a second year because uh, I just didn't really have a long-term path. But that's how I ended up working in politics is I just had had this kind of internship that turned into a career. I, I, I started... Uh, writing speeches um, for the mayor of New York, which was then David Dinkins. Dinkins. And then through the Dinkins team, I met these political consultants and and um, they sort of took a liking to me and they basically said, you should move to Washington and you should come back with us, basically. And I got it. They, they helped me get an interview with Dick Gephardt on Capitol Hill. He was at that time the leader of the House Democrats. And I worked in his office for a couple of years. And then you're getting to know everybody in political Washington very quickly. How old were you at this point? Like 25-ish? Yeah, or? that's yeah, about yeah. 25. And uh, then I ended up uh, working in the Clinton White House. And it was just this, once you get to Washington, it's a small community, especially I was a speechwriter from the beginning because I just fell into it and I guess had enough of a knack for it that I kept getting opportunities. But how did that, like the speechwriting 
it's it's pretty specific, isn't it? Within that world, is speech writing pretty specific? Like how? Yeah, did you, it is pretty when you specific. Say you fell into it. Did did something? Here's what happened. I, I was in this kind of. It was really a glorified internship program with New York City government. It's it still exists. It's a great little program called the New York City Urban Fellows Program. And the way it works is that your salary is paid out of a fund. It's a very low salary. It's probably I don't know what it was at the time. You know, in the you know. 20 something thousand dollars a year, barely enough to live in New York City, even then. And uh, basically, you are you're paid by this program. And you work anywhere in city government, really, you can work in a commissioner's office, you can work in the mayor's office, you can work in a field office of some city agency. But the condition of this program paying your salary and giving you to an office is um, they can't give you any entry level work. Uh, so, and, and, and the idea of the program also is there tend to be people from good colleges who have good grades. Like you have to apply for this. It's yeah. like, by select, the way, I was going to say, I was going to interject and just say, you know, Eli is extremely humble. So he's, he makes it sound like he went to like a community college and like found it. He, he's a Harvard grad. You're, and, and even hearing you say, you're not good in science and math. I kind of don't believe you because I, I always, well, I, when I describe you, I, I describe you as my extremely smart oh, friend. Oh, you're very You're kind. very humble. You're very but kind. You're, you're, I put on a good act. Well, yeah, I've learned okay. some acting so skills on. from so you. So go on. I won't. Clearly. I won't. I won't uh, no, it's very nice of you to say. But so, so in, I, in a hiring freeze, uh, which there was at the time, uh, at some point in the 90s, uh, in New York City government, we were all sort of, you know, there were like 20 or 30 of us in this program. Uh, we were, you know, people with good grades and probably good resumes for these jobs and and being, you know, all these offices were told you can have these people for free. You just have to give them substantive work to do. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up meeting through a contact. I literally was just trying to network on my own and the program helped, helped me too. But I found this guy kind of on my own who was the chief speechwriter to the mayor. Um, he's a guy I'm still friends with. His name is John Siegel, terrific guy. And I remember sitting with him in his office and basically saying, you know, why don't you let me work for you for a couple of weeks? It's free. Uh, I don't know if he even was that familiar with the program. And I said, if you don't think it's working out, I'll leave. And if I don't think it's working out, I'll leave. And I remember he kind of bristled when I said the second part, but he took me on. We became very close and I started as like a researcher to him, but Within a few weeks, like, I don't know, one of the speechwriters had a cold and was home and he gave me the most insignificant uh, speech to write, which was like, I don't know, something the mayor was honoring, like the Westinghouse science contest winners in some little ceremony in City Hall that nobody was ever going to go to. And I slaved over this thing and uh, and I think it probably needed a ton of work, but I remember what this guy, John said about it was that it wasn't really any good as a speech because it read a little bit like a transcript of the mayor speaking off the cuff. Like, I think I spent a few days standing in the back of press conferences and hearing him talk. And I thought the idea is to sound like him. And then he kind of said, well, no, actually the idea is to sound a lot better than him. So it's, but I had an ear for the, for the way people talk. So he was sort of saying. Given where you ended up. Now, well, yeah, but, I think but, maybe. And and also I was always into music and I always was told I had good pitch and good ears for music. And I think it's a similar thing. Um, you know, I'm not saying like I had some preposterous gift, but I just was a kid who worked hard. And, yeah. and so I remember him saying to me, okay, this speech I kind of need to throw in the garbage, but I think you can do this. 
Like, I think you actually have what it takes to do this. So then I just started writing more and more speeches and minor ones at first and more significant ones. And when the program ended, he offered me a job as a speechwriter in the mayor's office. So I did that and he kind of took me under his wing and some other people too. And I was this kind of kid running around City Hall and and uh, it was an amazing time for me because I didn't take the job very seriously. I was in a band on the side and had my kind of first, you know, serious girlfriend and was sort of having a great time of my life. But you know, and writing speeches for the mayor. And I, you yeah. know, I knew the mayor pretty well and I would kind of wander in and out of meetings and, you know, like I, everybody treated me really well because I was so young and, 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 you know, I was like almost a mascot or something in the office. <laughs> it felt that way. Uh, and, and, you know, pretty soon Did I said- they give you a little, a little beanie with the, a propeller Yeah, on they it should have. I had a little, I had a collar <laughs> that I would wear, a flea and tick collar. No, but I, but I, um, I had a great time and I definitely- you know, kissed law school goodbye because I said, who wants to go and, you know, who wants to do this? And in fact, I remember when I started to realize I probably wasn't going to go to law school, um, I remember saying to a lot of family and friends, because I had accepted a place at a law school, and I remember saying, I think I might not go. Uh, Before I'd fully made the decision, more to see what the reactions would be. And, And every reaction I got was sort of like, well, you know, it's not going to hurt to have a law degree or it's only three years. They were only negative arguments. Nobody was able to talk me into going. It was like you were talking about chemotherapy or something. Right. So, so I didn't go to law school. I got offered a job in Washington on Capitol Hill. And that was even more unreality and, you know, weirdness. And I think I always loved in politics, the absurdity of it. The fact that I felt like this kid who didn't know anything about anything. The fact that you could write a speech didn't make you an expert in policy or government or anything. I learned about that as I, as time went on, I learned I had a few things, you know, to say on, on those, you know, maybe even strategically. But in the beginning, I was just a guy who would sit in the meetings and huddle with the pollsters and consultants and policy people and go write the speech. And I had good relationships with everybody and, and, um, and, and, you know, learned, learned how to do it properly, I would say, yeah. which which generally involves a close relationship with the politician, um, which I always had in, in every job I ever had as a speechwriter, so that you don't allow the speech to be a committee product. That was a very important thing that I learned early on, which is which is that you have to have the ability and the the sort of uh, as a surrogate say for whoever the politician is, you have to have their cooperation in cutting a lot of people out of the process. And and I know that's an awful thing to say kind of, but you know, even when I was working on Capitol Hill in one of my first little gigs like this, everybody on his staff wanted to come in and tell me what to say and how to phrase things and the language of governance, which is very boring and sort of uh, mind numbing. And you started to learn who was going to help it become a punchy, quotable, fun thing? Who was going to let you do something that was going to elevate the politician and who was going to drag it down? And some people would get invited to the next meeting and some people wouldn't. So how many people would be in a, say you're the the cheap speechwriter and and you've got your politician, how many other people would be involved? It's it's always different. But I mean, I can say, you know, skipping ahead a little bit, you know, my my significant speechwriting job and the longest one I ever had was working for Al Gore. I, I, I worked for 
Dick Gephardt on Capitol Hill. I worked for Bill Clinton for a year, not as a speechwriter, but as a kind of an all-purpose communications aide. I did write a few speeches and radio addresses. But then I was Al Gore's chief speechwriter from 1997 until the end of the Florida recount. Actually, even a little bit longer than that. And, you know, he would want to bring in tons of people to advise him on speeches. I mean, cabinet members and thinkers. And sometimes there'd be 10 people in a room, you know, arguing back and forth about education policy. But then when it came time to really shape the speech itself, to write it, to review drafts of it, um, sometimes it'd just be me and him. Uh, and maybe sometimes one other person. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he was very, very hands-on. So, I mean, he and I would pull all-nighters sometimes. But, I mean, I, 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 you know, I was either given the ability or I took the ability to you know, not always let people know we were about to 10 p.m. start writing a speech for the next five hours. There, there probably would have been a lot of people who would have loved to have joined us and stayed up. Yeah. Um, you know, because you can't, you just can't average out people's ideas like that. And certainly you can't have a writing process where there's four people. Well, waiting. it reminds me of, you know, in our world, it's always, you know, we'll kind of say it's easier to get a job when there's one you know, if you have one, you have Woody Allen wants you for the gig, you're going to get the gig sure. if he thinks you're the person, you know. But if, on, in TV, a lot of times it's, it's oh, you know, you're yeah. hired by committee and it's hard to, even when you're working, um, I've, I've found more on the cable side that there are less, you know, there's, there's, there are less people to go to with an idea. Oh, for sure. In broadcast TV, when you're casting a significant part, um, any kind of significant, let's say, recurring part, not even a regular role, um, there's what the producers and writers want. Then the network and studio have casting departments. They have to approve things. They reject things constantly. They have their lists of people. Sometimes, you know, the head of a network kind of will just say to somebody in the hallway in passing, like, oh, Matt Del Negro would be great for this show. And then never mind what the writers and producers want. Yeah, people are scrambling to enforce that like it's the law. Sometimes the network president didn't even mean to enforce it. Yeah, um, things get very overinterpreted. There's a lot of distortion in that process. And but, so, in your in your world uh, at that point of speech writing, you found. I mean, that makes sense to me. You want a singular voice, and you want you want something to to represent the politician. It's funny, I, I had an experience early on, which was something that we did a little elliptical version of on the West Wing, where when I was working for Al Gore, you know, uh, still a kind of a, you know, snot-nosed, you know, 20-something, you know, kid, uh, I considered myself to be working for Gore's chief of staff because he had really hired me. I'd had to have a job interview with Gore. In fact, I remember him telling me, I'm not going to put you in a room with Gore until you tell me you will take the job if you if offered it, but only he can offer you the job. So I sort of had lunch with the chief of staff. I had another meeting with the chief of staff with somebody I'd known a little bit, but he was but but even though Gore interviewed me, I considered myself to be reporting to the chief of staff. So who was a brilliant guy and a wonderful guy who I'm still friends with. But his relationship with Gore was up and down. Uh, actually a lovely guy named Ron Klain, who was played by Kevin Spacey in the TV movie Recount that I think gets into a bit their up and down relationship. And at one point, I I had written a draft of a speech. I had a meeting with Gore, just the two of us, I think, and I'd written a draft of a speech. And then the chief of staff read the speech and had a lot of problems with it. 
and basically said that's not at all what he should be saying at this venue. And he wrote me an email that I thought was a very smart email saying you have to totally refocus it around X, Y, Z. And I, I kind of said to him, okay, but this is completely different from what, you know, the vice president wants. And, um, you know, I'm meeting with him Tuesday for like two hours when I'm supposed to come in with a draft. So come to that meeting and, you know, I'll write your version of it. And he said, I'll be there. Great. But they were having a lot of problems in their relationship at that point, a lot of friction. And he ended up leaving not long after that. But I went to that meeting. The chief of staff did not show up. Uh, and Al Gore basically said to me, what are you doing in my office? You know, <laughs> why don't you go to the chief of staff's office? Like, basically, if you're not going to do what I want you to do, don't even show up. And uh, that was the last time I ever, Listen you know, to anybody else. Yeah, I, I think it was very appropriately and, you know, and with, and respectfully, it was the vice president of the United States saying to me, you work for me. Yeah. You know, this is a very important thing that you do for me and other people can weigh in, but you can't override what we've discussed yeah. without my permission. And, you know, that needed clarification, actually. But, uh, you know, in my mind, and I never did it again. And and Gore and I, by the way, had a great working relationship and I'm still in touch with him. And, you know, it was, you know, it's been said of politicians that all they have are really at the end of the day are their words and their time. Yeah. And uh, his words were very important to him. and, 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 you know, other people were led into that process with his permission. Yeah. Not with mine. <laughs> I mean, how is that? You know, this is um, just, did it, did it hit you in the moment that you're working in the White House for the vice president of the United States? Like, it, w- was that a surreal moment or were you just kind of like, yeah, no, this is what I did. I was, I was. No, it was beyond mayor, surreal. And now this is what it is. No, it was, I, I never, I never, uh, well, it was an interesting thing because. Talking about, you know, the theme of your podcast here and the thousand no's, I... 10,000 no's. 10,000 no's. I want to start slowly and just do the first thousand no's first. But no, I, I, it was must, I, I can't remember from when and from what period, but it was a dream of mine to work in the White House. It really was. I mean, I, I always, I grew up in a family that talked about politics a lot and I was very enamored of, you know, politics and... You know, I really didn't come to the Clinton world until like pretty much the second term. But uh, the excitement of him being elected and then the energy of these kind of young aides, the George Stephanopoulos and Rahm Emanuel's, and they were rock stars to me. And um, so when I was leaving New York to go to Washington and I was offered this job on Capitol Hill through these consultants, I got to know all these Washington political consultants in my time in the mayor's office. I said to all of them, like, do you think, do you know anyone in the White House? Can you get me a job in the White House? And they they wanted me to work for Dick Gephardt, who was a client of theirs. And they were sort of, and, and, and I, I met Gephardt and probably he said, oh, I want this guy or whatever. Uh, but I sent a few letters and I kind of tried to get a job in the White House and I, I kind of couldn't get arrested. I just couldn't get anyone's attention there. I mean, and there was a, you know, they had their hands full and I was a nobody. Um so then, actually, the funny thing is, then about a year into my time with Dick Gephardt, um, I was offered a job in the White House as a speechwriter um, working for Clinton. And at that time, Gephardt had a lot of tension with the White House. And I felt like I was betraying the office just by going over there secretly and meeting with the guy who was the chief speechwriter at the time. And I ended up turning down the job. Uh, I think I felt 
Clinton's speechwriters were not treated very well. They didn't have close relationships with the president. Uh-huh. Uh, and at that time, the Clinton White House was having a lot of problems. So this thing I had pined after, I ended up turning down. And then about a year later, um, I thought, okay, I've worked on Capitol Hill for two years and, and I've done it. And um, all of the action and excitement really does seem to be over in the White House. And the guy who had offered me a job, who was the chief speechwriter, had been promoted and become the communications director. So I called him and I, uh, and I, I sort of said, you know, look, if there's any opportunity to come work for you now, I would love to do it. And he said, I would love that. And let me, let me work on it. And it actually took him about six months to hire me because Gephardt and Gore were seen as competitors for the 2000 Democratic nomination at that time. And I, I was told later that the Gore people said, blocked my hiring uh-huh. and said to they this guy, like Don Bear, yeah, they said to this guy, Don Bear, like, can't you find somebody else for this job? But to, to, you know, to my, his credit, and I'm very grateful, he, I think, said, no, this is the guy I want. And um, I, eventually, I eventually got hired there. And the first thing I did is call, call Gore's chief of staff and say, you know, I, I, I know you guys could have blackballed me and like, thank you so much for allowing me to work here. And I plan to be loyal to the vice president. And they said, oh, no, we just said, hey, is this the best guy? And if it is, then that's who you've got to hire. And, you know, and then the rest is history. I mean, they came after me a year later. Yeah. Uh, and then so let's talk about uh, the recount and the way I love the way, you know, you told me this story years ago, really, when we first started working together, um, how it came about that you came out here. And, yeah. You know, that, that well, so what happened really was, um, you know, the Gore campaign was a rough uh, uphill campaign a lot of the time. I mean, we we made a lot of missteps and we never had this kind of feeling of the wind at our back other than for around six weeks, kind of in the late summer and early fall of 2000. But, you know, on election night itself, the, the real official election night, for part of the evening, it seemed like Gore was going to become the president and we Florida had been called for Gore. Then it was pulled back by, uh, I guess, all the major networks based on, you know, tightening of the polling beyond, you know, what they had projected. Uh, then, of course, Gore... Um, who had called Bush actually to concede the election, um, called Bush back and withdrew his concession of the election. I was about two feet away from him when he made that call. That was a very strange and surreal evening. Um, you know, I had written a concession speech, which Gore was about to deliver when we sort of learned that, um, with 99 Point nine percent of the vote counted in Florida. We were only 600 votes behind, which meant an automatic machine recount the next day, according to Florida state law. So Gore retracted his concession. And then we entered what became a 36-day period of a machine recount and hand recounts and legal challenges and all the way up to the Supreme Court, you know, where we were trying to figure out who actually won the election. And now this is obviously a source of a lot of bitterness for me because I believe there's no question that more people entered voting booths in Florida intending to vote for Al Gore and left those voting booths thinking they had voted for Al Gore than for George Bush. But because of a lot of blunders and legal things, you know, we we did not come out of that victorious. Um, and, you know, during the recount, those 36 days, 
it had the the feeling of of like we had a terminal patient on our hands. There was like a day when either the Supreme Court ordered some counting to resume somewhere where we thought, well, maybe this could go our way. But most of the time, I think the feeling during the recount was a kind of a grim march to to defeat. Uh, And so, you know, I think I'd always felt politics was something that I wanted to do when I was younger and then figure out what to do when I grew up, kind of. I never thought I was going to spend- You never saw yourself as a lifer. Mm -mm. And I'd been offered jobs at- political consulting firms and uh, different kinds of like permanent Washington jobs. And I never wanted those. And I have a lot of close friends who still are in Washington and work for Obama and are there now at think tanks and doing different things. And I think it's great. But I always wanted to do something else, but I never knew what that thing was. I thought about working in the music industry because I loved music, but the jobs you would do as a not musician in the music industry are kind of dreary. It's just business. Yeah. Um, So... During the recount, I was obviously, you know, I had a lot of free time, even though I would go to these meetings with Gore and go to some strategic meetings. There was a lot of sitting around and I was thinking a lot about my future and I got an email out of the blue. I was getting called by anybody who knew me, anybody who had my number from the campaign, just because the whole country was focused on this recount and, uh, you know, like what was going to happen. So if you knew somebody involved, you'd probably shoot them a note and say, hey, what's going on? So I got an email out of the blue from a kind of a college friend who at the time was a talent agent. And it was just a joking email kind of saying, how are you and what's happening? I hadn't talked to him in a couple of years. And, you know, if this doesn't work out, um, you should sell out and become a screenwriter. Uh, I can get you a job writing scripts for the West Wing. That was what this email said. And I love your response. Well. Well, at least the way you told it to me. I don't know if you my, remember. My response, I, I, I don't remember... Um, hopefully I told you what I still remember to be the the case, but I called him the next day. Uh, and, and I had a lot of time on my hands at that point. This is in the middle of the recount. And we spoke for about an hour on the phone, just catching up. And, uh, and I, at the end of the conversation, I said, you know, were you serious about, about helping me become a screenwriter or about me becoming a screenwriter? Because, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And that sounds interesting to me. And he said, you know, it's kind of hard. You would need a screenplay. You you know, it's it's not so easy. You know, he was very discouraging. But he said, you know, if you're interested, give me a call, you know, and we'll talk about it. And so the basic vibe I got from him was, you know, I'm not really going to, there's not much I can do to help you. You're a guy who's never written a script or whatever. Uh, But it planted the seed in my head. And I had a couple college friends who were out here already kind of as as uh, one guy was um, working on a sitcom. Uh, as a writer. As a writer. And the other guy was sort of writing TV movies, basically. And, uh, and I called them both. And they both sort of said, you know, you should try it. Or like, you will help you. You'll be good at this. Or, you know, encouraging things. Yeah. And so, you know, a few handful of days later, I mean, I don't even, those phone calls might've even happened a couple weeks later, but not long after that initial interaction with this, this town agent friend of mine, uh, I, the recount ended and suddenly me and all my friends and colleagues are literally unemployed, like on unemployment. Uh, we all went on unemployment uh, and we just started going out every night in Washington, just to bars and restaurants and hanging around the sort of democratic hangouts. And, you know, this had been a, 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 that campaign had been a, 
I think in the year 2000, at one point I calculated that I had two days off that entire year. Wow. And that includes Sundays and holidays. We worked like crazy, 18 hours a day. You'd be in three states a day. You know, I spent a lot of time flying around on Air Force Two with Gore and in crazy situations that, you know, think four things would happen to you in a day that if one of them happened in the course of a month of your normal life, you would think it was extraordinary and be telling everybody about it. Yeah. It was just unreality everywhere. Heads of state and senators and celebrities and chaos and, you know, crises and every minute. So during this decompression period, we're all just going out drinking every night, basically. And everybody's, you know, asking everybody, are you, what are you doing now? Are you moving to New York? Are you staying in Washington? And I started saying to people, it's a, a bit like telling people I wasn't going to law school. Yeah. I started just trying this on for size and saying to people, you know, I'm thinking of moving to LA to become a television writer. And the reason I said that is because I, I knew from my two friends who were out here already that there were teams that wrote television shows as opposed to one guy writes a movie. And I didn't know how to write a movie. Yeah. So I, I just thought, I don't know, maybe somebody would hire me based on my background. Uh, and... Every single person to a person that I said that to, maybe 40 people in the course of a couple weeks said to me, the West Wing, you should go work for the West Wing. Like it was that simple. Yeah. Because uh, it's about exactly what you do. Now, the West Wing had been on the air for about a year and a few months at that point. It was, it was early in its second season. It was already a hit TV show. And it was already becoming pretty big in Washington. But... I had a bit of an attitude about it, I think, at that time, because when the first episode aired, when the pilot episode aired, I watched it at the home of a close friend of mine, still a close friend of mine, with a couple other people, and it just seemed silly. Rob Lowe was in it, who I thought of as a guy from cheesy 80s movies. Uh, you know, the storyline of the first episode was less substance, substantive, at least it didn't feel that way. It was sort of like Rob Lowe sleeps with a call girl and they trade pagers. And, you know, it's actually kind of clever. But at the time, you know, I'd come out, I literally spent that day in the White House and then you're watching this kind of silliness. It didn't feel like it reflected anything. And I got paged about, you know, by my office about 20 minutes into the thing. Yeah. So I spent the whole rest of the time in a back room at my friend's apartment dealing with something. So... I just wrote it off. I never watched it again, but everybody was mentioning it to me. Uh, and I watched a couple episodes on the air during that period. You know, at that point, you couldn't buy DVDs of it or anything. You just had to watch it on NBC. And I, I thought, you know, this is pretty, pretty great. And, um, and also because it had this light, breezy Aaron Sorkin banter, and I didn't know anything about screenwriting, I watched it and I thought, I could write that. That's pretty easy to write, which yeah. it isn't at all. Yeah. But it just seemed so effortless, which is, of course, the trick. Uh, so I thought to myself, and, you know, very often in my job working for Gore, he would say to me, like, oh, I just read this op-ed in the Washington Post by this economist in Missouri. Like, talk to him. You know, like, just get that guy and, like, see if he has any ideas for our economic speech or whatever. And yeah. I would just have to find people. And, um, you know, you sometimes you were on the other end of that equation. Well, well I was on the I same mean, end of that equation in a way. Well, but I'm saying you ended up being on the other end of that equation for, well, I don't want to ruin the punchline, but. Well, it, well, you know, what, what, what ended up happening was I, I remembered that I had read a Washington Post profile of Aaron Sorkin that kind of presented him as as he was, really, a sort of a youngish guy himself who was uh, 
trying to depict politics as a kind of an honorable profession and writing this show that was a little unusual for network television. And I just thought to myself, you know what? I should call this guy out of the blue. Like I had a sense that he might be interested in me because I just worked in the White House and, you know, on this campaign and that's what the show's about. And, you know, I didn't know who they had helping them or whatever. Um, So, and this is how kind of brazen I was and, you know, determined to just find a way, because this is what I would have done if Al Gore had asked me to get Aaron Sorkin on the phone. I called Los Angeles Information and I asked for the number of NBC, which is the, you know, which was airing the show. And I got, I, I called that general number and I said, I'm trying to reach the TV show, The West Wing. And they said, actually, you need to call Warner Brothers, the studio. And they gave me that number. Uh, so I called that number. I said, I'm trying to reach the West Wing. They switched me over to the West Wing offices. Same call. Then they switched me over to Aaron Sorkin's office. I said, I'm trying to reach Aaron Sorkin. And then his assistant, who still works for him today, actually, uh, answered the phone. And I said, he doesn't know me. I was Al Gore's chief speechwriter until a couple weeks ago. I'm calling to talk to him. And she put me on hold. And I don't know, a minute later, Aaron Sorkin picked up the phone. And, you know, in retrospect, he was probably sitting there looking at a blank screen, you know, thinking, what do I write? And I'm sure he had no idea who I was, but... You know, he, he, I don't know, it's a, if, if you, if you're a lawyer, a junior lawyer on OJ's legal defense team and you place a call to Dick Wolf when he's running law and order, you probably will get through. Yeah. Uh, and, and Aaron was incredibly nice and solicitous on the phone. And I remember he, he seemed almost excited. He answered the phone. He said, how are you? Like, are you sleeping? Okay. Like you guys got robbed. And, uh, and I said to him, you know, I, 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 I'll admit I haven't seen a lot of the West Wing. And I remember he said, I wouldn't expect you to. You must be so busy. Uh, And I said, um, but I know it depicts people in politics as kind of honorable, decent people. And I really appreciate that and respect that about it. And uh, and I'm interested in being a television writer. And I'm not asking you for a job because you've got a hit TV show and everything. But but I'm coming to LA sometime soon. And I wonder if you would have a cup of coffee with me. And he said, "Um, I'd love to consider you for a job. you know, call my, when are you going to be in LA? And I think I said sometime next month, which I was making up and he said, call my assistant and set it up. And he hung up. Um, so, you know, I, I, I booked a flight to LA. I stayed with one of my college friends who was working in TV. Uh, I met with Aaron for half an hour or something, but it was a great meeting. Uh, we were both talking a million miles a second. We connected right away. Uh, and I remember he said to me, you know, he said, I don't want to read any scripts. And I said, I don't have a script. And he said, just send me some speeches you've written that you think are good. And um, it was clear he just was interested in somebody who could give him stories and just Well, tell that's him. what I'm saying. When I'm saying you were on the other side of the equation, you were to him what that economist in, yes. you know, the middle of America was to Gore. I mean, you, he, he, you know, he, he, it was an incoming call for him, but you were the real deal. Yes. Now, you know, what I didn't fully realize at that point was that he already had Dee Dee Myers, who was Clinton's first White House press secretary as a consultant to the show. And she was living in L.A. and actually coming into the office a couple days a week. He already had uh, Lawrence O'Donnell, who'd worked for the Senate Finance Committee, who was a full time writer on the show at that point, yeah. uh, who left actually right before I started. Uh he had a couple other consultants who'd been around White Houses. So it wasn't like he didn't have it. But but I actually, 
you know, Lawrence left the show right before I started. Did he come back? Because he was there. He did come when back. I was he did come back. There. But so yeah. Lawrence worked on the first two seasons. Yeah. Uh, then he left for two seasons. I worked on the third and fourth seasons without Lawrence. And then Lawrence came back in the fifth season. And we worked there together to, till the show went off the air. Oh. But but I, I think when I w- ended up working on the show, um, there first of all, Dee Dee moved back to Washington from L.A., so suddenly I was like the only person. You were the guy. Plus yeah. I was. Um, you were right off of it. I mean, you were fresh. Yeah, fresh. I think I was also like younger and a workhorse. And and I would work a, eat, happily work a 12 hour day and feel like it was a half day, yeah. you know, given what my hours had been like. Um, and And I just had a great working relationship with Aaron. And I should point out that after our interview, um, I flew back to Washington and it was a few months before I got a job offer because in broadcast TV, offers are generally only made at one time of year in the sort of late spring. And uh, in the interim, I started hustling other TV shows. It was just impossible to get anywhere with anything. I I managed to get an agent, actually. I signed, uh, I had good meetings with a few agencies and I ended up signing at the place that did represent Aaron, this place that was then called Endeavor and is now William Morris Endeavor. And I've been with the same agents ever since, but who have been great. But, uh, but I, I don't think I would have gotten a job if Aaron hadn't offered me a job because yeah. I didn't have a script and, and I had this background, but there weren't a lot of TV shows on the air. There weren't any others really that could have made use of it. Um, but, but I ended up there one of the great weird coincidences is that it turned out that Aaron's mother was my fourth grade elementary school teacher. Really? Something, yeah, we didn't figure out. I figured and it he's out. he's from Scarsdale, right? He's from Scarsdale, yeah. but but he, he lived in Manhattan when he was a little kid, okay. maybe until he was nine or something. And he actually went to elementary school in the West Village. Uh, and his mother, Claire Sorkin, taught at my elementary school. And I I... Right before I left Washington to move to LA, because when I got the job offer, I was sort of back in DC and hustling around. And uh, actually, I think I was even in LA on another trip trying to get meetings with people when I got the call saying they've offered you a job on the West Wing as a you know staff writer, entry-level writer. And I had like six days to go back to Washington, pack up my apartment and get back out here. Yeah. And I called this friend of mine from elementary school, who I'm still in touch with, and uh told him I was moving to LA and taking this job. And he said, well, you know who Aaron Sorkin's mother is, don't you? And I said, who's Aaron Sorkin's mother? And he said, Mrs. Sorkin, <laughs> you know, which is how you think of your elementary school teachers, these giant authority figures who don't, don't even have first names. Uh, so that was That's a crazy coincidence. coincidence. Well, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of things that you're saying that, that kind of had these themes. First of all, my, the version that I had heard was the abbreviated version, which was like, you, someone was like, you should go right for the West Wing. And you were like, what's the West Wing? And then, and then like, next thing you know, you're oh, on the yeah, phone. Yeah. And, and, no, I knew and what, it was. what you told me, which was like, you know, when you call anywhere from the White House, they're going to take your call. Yeah. And you, you know, but I didn't call from the White House though. I remember I called you, from my but, apartment yeah. in Washington. I was already unemployed at that point. <laughs> That's right. You're right. The, the, the new, I'm saying I got, you know, this yeah. kind of like abbreviated version, but, but there, there are a couple of things. One is like this, this idea that um, that that recurs on this podcast, which is the thing that we think is like the biggest nightmare for us, you know, for you guys at that time, I'm sure if you interviewed everybody on Gore's staff, it was, you know, terrible, terrible loss, terrible defeat, terrible failure. And yet that 
is what propelled you to where you are now and and this whole new life that you just had no idea existed before. Um, and and that the fact that that things happen sometimes that are out of our they're bigger than us. And then and then you have no choice but to go, okay, well which is in the West Wing, what's next? I mean, you know, that's yeah. the tagline. I mean, look, right? I don't it's, wish I don't wish for a second, um, or rather, I do wish that Gore had become the president because yeah. I don't think we would have gone to war with Iraq. Uh, I, I think we, I don't think we would have, you know, spent the you know hard won budget surpluses of <clears throat> the Clinton years on tax cuts. I think we would be a lot better off as a country now. Um, but for me personally, you know, I, I, it was a. It, I, it's it's hard to say it this way in a way. I feel guilty saying it, but it was a good thing because I was burned out on politics, um, and the recount was a rough experience. And to have gone from the recount into a presidential transition would have been tough. Would have been tough on me physically and emotionally. I already was exhausted and had like you know was like a guy you know young guy with lower back pain from being in vans and on planes for you know two years straight and you know I was a bit of a mess you know in every way other than like professionally and you know the truth is I definitely would have stayed with Gore and I would have felt an obligation to do so. First of all, it would have been an honor to do so. But also I had a lot of institutional memory for him at that point. And given the weirdness of the recount and the shortness of the transition, I couldn't have left him for a minute. But I used to say to people, well, you know, I'll probably stay his speechwriter for like a year if he becomes the president. But but I know it would have been longer. I know I wouldn't have been able to leave. Yeah. Uh, and so it was a good time for a fresh start for me. And it was a good time to learn something new yeah. also, which was a very stimulating thing. But for me, I never really set out to work in politics and I definitely never set out to work in Hollywood. And it, it, I think there's something when, you, when you're open about your own life, that's sometimes when the best things happen. And I know people, and we all know people who set out, and by the, they're eight years old and they want to be a theater actor or they want to be a physicist or whatever, and they go after it and they get it. But for me, life has never been that way. It's always been, I'm sort of stumbling along and I don't really, I can't think more than six months ahead. I'm not capable of it. I've never done that. And you just, you know, suddenly you realize, oh, I have to figure out what to do now. And you panic a little bit and you figure something out and you walk through some door and it's, it's a great, it's been a great thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. You're open. Yeah. You're open to what's next. And, and in the meantime, it's not like you're sitting on your couch eating bonbons. I mean, you are a hard worker yet. Yeah. You, you do like, I wouldn't be shocked. I mean, you said something earlier in the interview. I I still feel like I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up, which is funny. My dad says that as well. Yeah. And he's 81. He just turned 81. Oh, good for him. And and he, uh, you you know, you had, I wouldn't be shocked if you told me at some point you were somehow in the music industry. I know you love music. I let, you know, I know I just, I wouldn't be shocked of anything. You do have kind of uh, this, um, it, it, it is, it's interesting. It's an openness. It's a, it's a humility or um, a curiosity, I think, is what you have. Even you telling me how you kind of got into speech writing in the first, but you just kind of have a, a curiosity. You're obviously a, a smart and talented guy, and you're kind of like, okay, go with the flow, um, which is interesting. There, there are um, 
yet within your work, you're, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, even just getting us together for this interview, you're very disciplined, very well, disciplined. I uh, think, I think, um, I don't think of myself as at all disciplined. It's really? a funny thing. I don't. I feel uh, like <laughs> because you always have a you always have a deadline. I mean, you you are working. Well, here's your the ass thing. Off. Here's the thing, um, and I know that a lot of people would be very surprised to hear me say that. Um, <clears throat> and I guess what I mean by that is that I'm capable of enormous inefficiency. I'm capable of wasting a lot of time. I'm capable of sitting around for days doing nothing, flipping through books and magazines or whatever. Um, because I started so young as a speechwriter at a high level, right? I mean, my first job was working for the mayor of New York and literally having to sometimes march into his office with a draft of a speech or a radio address. Um, you know, when I was 21, I had days when I had four deadlines in a day. Uh, wow. And so speechwriting always was that for me. And then I went into TV writing on a network show, a hit network show with a million deadlines constantly and working under, you know, Aaron Sorkin, who is incredibly hard driving and overachieving and exacting. Uh, and things are always being done and redone and reapproached and turned on their head. And so I feel like if I'm not given a deadline, if I'm not told something must be done, uh, I just won't do anything. <laughs> uh, now that's not entirely true. No, but I love it's the, not entirely true. My mind is honesty. always spinning, yeah, but it's yeah. really true. My mind is always spinning, and like I'm in a position right now where I've been working on a TV show, and we're pretty much done with all the writing. So I'm trying to think about an original script that I can write, and I don't have an idea. But like the gears are turning, and I'm talking on the phone here and there, and at some point I'll spring into action and do something. But it's almost like I've had so many deadlines all the time, always that whatever sort of self-initiating nerve endings there are, like those nerves are shot. Yeah. Um, now, there have been times when I've sort of said, oh, I need a piece of material. If I don't have a new script that I can show people, like my career will stall. Yeah. You know, people want to read, oh, a screenplay or an original pilot or something. I better, you know, set something up and sell it and write it and have something and then I'll do it. But if there's no reason to do it, I, for the, I will never do it for the sake of doing it. But I've always had reasons all the time. Yeah. So like lately, we've been trying to schedule this interview for a while. And I've been, I've been, I know I've been, you know, at times I've been elusive about it just because I was working on this TV show for the last six, seven months that was crazy hours and a lot of weekends. But that was not initiated by me. Right. I never woke up on a Saturday morning and said, gee, I think I'm going to write a one-act play for the joy of writing a one-act play. Right. It was always like, we're behind on our schedule and we have scripts to generate and the boss is calling me three times and that's what it was. So so then what is it that, uh, and we'll get into the other shows, the one you're doing now with Shonda, uh, I don't know if she's there all the time or- if Not even, I never right. even actually met her. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, this is a show created by somebody under her and- Okay, and, this is, yeah. okay. So it's Shonda Land. Yes, exactly, not, okay. exactly. Um, and House, you did for the whole run? No, right? no. Oh. I actually did House. I did The West Wing for five seasons. I was not there for the first two. And then I ended up at House for five seasons. I was okay. not there for the first three. Okay. So, so I'm the guy who shuts off the lights at the end, actually. <laughs> so, okay. So, and and so anyway, I don't, we don't have to go into your resume. Those are all great. Sh you, you know, you're, you're working with great people. Um, but I, I'm going to ask just to, uh, based on what you're saying now, like, what is it that, motivates you um you've said the deadlines but like what 
um, when when you sit down to, you know, when you sit down to write, you you have a there's obviously a bar of excellence that has been set from, you know, from way back to, just to get into Harvard, and then and then you talk about the internship and the, the mayor and, and Washington, Sorkin, all of it. So there's obviously just a, a quality. You're you're not gonna put material out that 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 is not quality. Well, I tr- I try not to. Uh, uh, I you know if I think it's a good question. I think that the, the the actual answer to that question probably has something to do with my childhood. You know, which is to say, like my brother is a research scientist and also very hard driving and publishes you know, academic papers all the time and is a true intellectual. And it's, it's you know, it's funny because sometimes, you know, in Hollywood, I people, some people perceive me as an intellectual. I don't consider myself anything close to that. And my brother's the real deal. But I think both of us, you know, our parents, my dad died when I was young, but, you know, my mom is is still going strong. But, you know, both our parents and, and my stepdad really also artists, uh, and I think when we were kids, even though they were very loving parents and were around all the time, they were busy and they were focused on their own work a lot. And I think doing interesting things was a little bit how we got our parents' attention. That's my theory looking back, yeah. which is that, you know, we would, as kids, my brother and I, we would draw all the time and we would, you know, uh, have little projects and, you know, put on little shows for them. And, uh, you know, my dad was a photographer and as a kid, my brother and I would go in the dark room with him and learn to make prints and take photographs. And so I think some of it was just, you know, probably to impress our parents, you know, but the other thing is that I got very lucky, uh, at an early age, which is, which is that I, as a kid, I was music obsessed and I hung out in record stores a lot, like in Manhattan, in, in, in my, you know, childhood. And the, the, the record stores I hung out in, all the people who worked in them were in bands and, uh, probably like in the Dinkin city hall, they sort of took a liking to me and sometimes they'd play matinees and they would invite me or bring me. And so I kind of got to know all these guys in bands who were, you know, 15 years older than me, uh, or more. Um, but I, I felt like I would occasionally get access to something kind of inside and something really cool. And I loved that. I loved the feeling of like, this is something you don't normally get to see. And here I am. So when I stumbled into a career in politics, suddenly I was like in the room with the mayor of New York in a budget meeting. And why was I in a citywide budget meeting? Because I was going to have to write some press release or something. And, uh, and it was just cool. And I think, you know, when I, when I sat down with Aaron Sorkin and, and had my interview with him, he's, he's so smart and he was in the middle of so many things. And, uh, you know, there were, I remember there were multicolored script pages organized in some crazy way all over the floor of his office. And he was clearly squeezing me in, in between nine meetings that just felt creative and interesting and fun. And I just wanted to be in that environment. Yeah. I just thought like, this is a high powered place where cool things are happening. And I think I've, that's what I've always wanted. And the jobs I've loved are the jobs where I felt not so much like, oh, I'm, it's about me winning some great acclaim or something, but that like cool things are happening and I'm in, I'm in the room. I'm a part of something. Yeah. Right? Or just watching. Yeah. I mean, like I was happy to be in the room at the side of the room with Al Gore when um, uh, I remember 
this is an odd thing to bring up in this context, but I remember Al Gore's father passed away, who was a very prominent senator from Tennessee himself. And uh, I kind of pulled an all-nighter with Al Gore, you know, working on the eulogy, most of which Gore wrote himself and kind of dictated to me. But we were in this little farmhouse in Tennessee writing this eulogy. I got no sleep. We're backstage at the memorial service and uh, I'm looking for a, a power outlet to, to set up my laptop and portable printer. And all of a sudden a hand grabs my hand and yanks me over to the middle of the room. And before I really know what's happening, um, I'm standing in a circle with Al Gore, Tipper Gore, Jesse Jackson, and the Gore kids. And we're all holding hands and bowing our heads in prayer before this memorial service. And I'm a basically a Jewish atheist from public school in Manhattan you know, who a few years earlier was like watching Jesse Jackson on TV, you know? And, and I was very conscious in that moment of like, this is one of the weirdest things that's ever happened to me. I literally, I'm like holding Jesse Jackson's hand and then like Tipper Gore's hand, you know, on the other side of me. And what am I doing here? And, and the weirdness of that and getting to recount that story. Now, that's a moving moment and an important moment. And I, I met Al Gore's dad, you know, before he passed and he was a great guy. So I'm not minimizing that, but, but, I just always wanted an interesting life, yeah. you know? And, and, and so it, this is a long rambling way of saying, uh, when I sit down to write a script, you know, I'm hard on myself and I try to work hard and I try to sort of impress my benefactors, producers, studios, whatever. But to some degree, I just want to keep earning my access to cool environments. And, and you know, I'm still trying... Uh, I haven't successfully created something myself, like a TV show, but if I do, when I do, I want it to be cool. Yeah. I want it to be good. I want it to be an environment. I can't claim to be, you know, on Aaron Sorkin's level, but I want it to be something that is just a good place to be. I think it's got to be the music. I think it's got to be something from the, the, those young days. And well, I think it there's could something be. in there. It could be. The and problem, we, you know, I'm, I'm very, it's funny because I'm looking for an idea now for a script and I've thought a little bit about music. I often do. The only problem with things about music is you have a big stakes problem dramatically, you know, which is that, you know, it's, it's, it's like the TV show Vinyl, which I was very excited about on HBO, but there've been other examples of that before that. It just, it's a bunch of, people running around doing drugs, trying to sign the next rock band. I love right. that stuff, but like, it's not important. Yeah. I mean, a well, song a is important. Well, a little bit of what happened on, uh, you know, wasn't that kind of the issue with another show you wrote on that was short-lived, uh, Studio... Uh, Studio 60, Studio yes. 60, That's right. which, which it was like the West Wing, but at Saturday Night Live... Basically, was that the, what was the complaint about that? Well, that yeah, one of, of the complaints. The, the people thought everybody was high-minded, but at the end of the day, they're putting yeah, on a show. I and, think one of the complaints about Studio 60 is A lot that of people loved it. A lot of people loved it. Um, and it certainly a great cast and, and certainly great writing, meaning it was that Aaron Sorkin yeah. scene work. And, you know, there were scenes and episodes of that show that if you read it on paper, it was just dazzling. But I think a problem a lot of people had with it was that it was treating sketch comedy with the kind of importance, the sort of reverence that uh, world politics had. Just been yeah, treated. exactly. Yeah. That you know, you treat you know the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, coming in to advise the president on like bombing targets yeah, in but, the Middle but East. Here, see, here's where I, I maybe I disagree with you. You know what? I recently watched uh, on a plane, and I hadn't seen it maybe since the theater, and was really um, 
really happy that it held up, at least for me in the moment when I watched it on the plane, I was loving it, was uh, Cameron Crowe. Uh, almost Famous. Almost Famous. Yeah. And and there's there's something, you know, what what I think maybe that's harder to do with a TV show that long, but I almost feel like, you know, the way to make music have stakes is, is, uh, what they did was coming of age and the, the emotion, the emotional life, the emotional growth of that kid. And if you think of it in a, in a, you know, a TV context, it's like having a kid, like a young you, you know, in New York City and whatever it was that was going on, that that, mu- that entree to Possibly. that music world brought I think there's, there's a lot mm-hmm. of problems, I think, doing a TV show or even a movie about music. And I'll tell you something about Almost Famous. I think it's a very, very good movie that uh, is, a lot of it is beautifully done that for me, I have to say, failed as a movie. And the reason it did for me, one reason, which is the fictional band within the movie, I think they're called Stillwater. Yeah. Uh, they were terrible. And when they're on stage playing a song with the actors, you know, miming, or I don't even, maybe they were really singing, I can't remember. Uh, I don't believe for one second. There you go. (laughs) I don't believe for one second that they're as good as Led Zeppelin or as good as, you know, whoever it was that they were partly based on, Yes, or some band like that, that in their time, if you were the young Cameron Crowe in the audience at a Led Zeppelin show in the third row. Well, I guess what I'm... And that took me out of the movie. Well, what I'm saying, yeah, and this is, I don't even know if this is appropriate for this pod, but who cares? We we can talk about whatever we want to. That's right. Damn it. You uh, make the rules, Matt. uh, Don't let let, let your audience kick you around like that. But but what I'm, I'm thinking is like, you don't have to have you don't have to have the greatest band in history. It's more about this kid, you know, you yes. being being brought along into this world with these For sure. other up-and-coming musicians and their struggles. Do you, you ever but see, look, you know, like Party Down? You know, I've see, seen a little bit of it. Just, and I really, really, I really like it. Um, the difference, though, I was going to say, yeah. Party Down's a comedy. It's totally. No, completely And I don't really vibe. consider myself a comedy no, no, guy. No, 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 completely different yeah. vibe. But what I'm saying, what they did there that I liked, and, and this would be a different, more sure. dramatic version sure. of it, is is this kind of, they had this funny, quirky thing on one hand, but there was a real underbelly of the sadness of people that were that were pursuing this this career and, and trying to get somewhere. And I, I wonder if there's, there's something in that world of, of musicians that are kind of struggling who haven't hit, maybe some of them do, some of them don't, but th- more about this kid and his relationship to music. You know, there might be, there yeah. might be, but anyway, it's hard, but it's hard. Here's why it's hard. You're going to write this, okay? Here's but- why it's hard. Here's why it's hard. I've thought about this a lot. Here's why it's hard. Um, when I was a kid and I was hanging around bands and, you know, going to record stores a lot, like anybody that age, the music meant so much to me. I mean, it still does. To hear a great song, even a primitive, rough song by some indie band, you know, that's not a hit, you know, record, something in it has to really speak to you and connect to you or you don't care. So you're doing a TV show. Well, where are those songs coming from? Who's giving you those songs? Are you licensing those songs, which can be very expensive, you know, or are you going to hire some fictional, some some real musicians to write the fictional music? And who are they and how good will that stuff be? Because at the end of the day, the whole reason anybody's doing that in that scene is that music. Yeah. So if if that's a weak point of the show, the whole thing collapses because yeah. that's what it's all about. Yeah. Well, um, I haven't watched Empire, but I know that that well, I, I'm, I have no idea. But I, I but think Empire, I'm, I think part of the success of Empire is they got um, great musicians. Yeah, to I sign can't even remember on. his name. There's some very well known 
uh, hip hop yeah. guy who, who who's sort of in charge of the music, and they are doing real music that people like, and that some of it ends up on the charts, you yeah. know. And and uh, but then there's the stakes problem. I mean, I think it could work as a comedy in the sense I've almost decided now that when you look at cable and streaming, like look at a show like Atlanta, which I love. I don't laugh out loud a lot watching Atlanta. I, I, but it's great, great show. I feel like the difference between Atlanta and a drama, ha- half hour shows now, certainly the cable ones, the real difference between them and dramas is small stories versus big stories. Yeah. And I think dramas tend to want things that feel stakesier, that feel like you can sustain an hour, like Breaking Bad or like The Sopranos, you know, where even if they're small groups of characters, it's life and death yeah. and, and, and they're really things on the line. But you're right, there's going to be a way to do it. Somebody's probably working on it now, but vinyl, I think, sets back that genre a lot. Yeah. Because it was yeah. such a failure. And, and That's interesting. Uh, I'm just thinking of your note on, on that because I had something that was, I was working on with someone that we're kind of developing. It was in the financial world and a friend of mine who uh, at the time was working for Bruckheimer TV was like, yeah, you need you need blood. You need you know you need like you need some kind of yeah. It's a, you know this it was the the stakes and it's how a do you truism. do that? Which was you know it's a truism. You know that, that that like TV dramas tend to mostly be about doctors, cops, and lawyers because you've got somebody dying, you've got somebody who was killed. Yeah, you know, and and uh, there are great and maybe the greatest shows don't have those things. You know, like The Sopranos, like Breaking Bad. You know, but but they've found a way to incorporate those same elements. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, it's funny because, you know, working on, say, a show like House, um, whatever story you're trying to tell, whatever goofy character story you're trying to tell, you don't lose sleep over, like, well, what's the audience going to be tuning in for? Well, they're tuning in for the fact that someone just had a seizure and their eyes popped out of their head, and are you going to have to defibrillate them or, like, chop their head off? I mean, right. that's every eight minutes on a show like that. So you yeah. sort of, you, the stakes are just something that's in the bank. Yeah, it's embedded in the in the DNA of the show. Um, so l- let me give, we're, we're, you know, we can kind of wind down whenever you want. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm happy I'm easy. to whatever, whatever's have good you. for you. Well, I, I had one, one question. It's kind of a, it's kind of a huge uh, can of worms probably at this point, but I, I just, it, it always strikes me because you said before, you're like, you know, I'm, I'm a, an atheist, you know, Jewish atheist from New York city. And it always strikes me when you have a, you saying you're an atheist, you have this, like such a, a, a spirit of like, what, what, well, is it that you, do you have some kind of, we don't have to get fully into this whole uh, belief or, or certainly not religion, but like, do you have like a, a spirituality or a connectedness? Because you seem to have that as a guy. That's you seem interesting. To have like a real. I think that's nice to hear. Well, you have uh, a real humanity about you. So it's, it's, it's like, not to say that you can be, you know, atheist and not have sure. humanity. I'm just saying it, it's, it's like surprising in a way because you're, you're a warm uh, you're a warm individual in dealing with you and knowing you socially. And so you I'm know, just curious about I that. Guess we, I guess what I'd say, you know, I said atheist. Uh, uh, my parents, uh, you know, my mother's an atheist. My dad was an atheist. Uh, my stepdad's an atheist. Uh, I don't actually really, when I think about it, consider myself an atheist. I would probably say I'm more of an agnostic. I was raised without religion, although I was bar mitzvahed. But I think I ended up being bar mitzvahed more for cultural reasons. I certainly have a strong sense of Jewish identity. Uh, 
not so strong that I know so much about the religion and the faith, uh, uh, actually. But uh, it's funny because my, uh, uh, you know, completely non-Jewish, you know, girlfriend uh, always jokes that, you know, she's a better Jew than me, which I think is true. But, (laughs) but uh, I just don't know a ton about it. But, but, you know, I, I, I would love it if there was a God. I would love it if there were things out there beyond all of this because it's such a confounding mystery and the universe is so scary. And so I think, you know, when in the absence of that kind of belief, uh, I guess you can go a lot of different ways. I mean, you can just become a hedonist and have an attitude that like nothing matters. Uh, but I think for me, you it's it's always been about finding your own things that matter you know and 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 um you know since i don't know what is out there in the sky or what is after this life or what is you know underlying all of this crazy specificity of this you know world we live in um you know it, 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 it sometimes that makes you cling to the people in your life more tightly yeah. you know sometimes it makes you more of a humanist because if this is it, you want to, you want to cherish it, you know? So I've always been very, um, I've always, uh, had a lot of close friendships and, and, and been very connected to people that I've worked with and, and, uh, you know, uh, so I don't know. I don't know if it's a reaction or a separate thing. Uh, you know, I would, there are a number of times in my life that I have, um, tried to explore, you know, like Judaism or learn more about things like that. And I always end up in the same place, you know, and back, back to going, like just not knowing, yeah, you know, and not feeling some great pull in that direction, but you know, I'm open to it. Yeah. I don't just, I, I, look, I, I don't have, uh, any, any answers. I just found it. I find, found it interesting because you're, it, you know, when, when, because you, you said atheist and when you say atheist, it's just, it's like, boom, yes, no, like I door know. Door is closed. And I, I, I sort of, and you don't see. I probably was exaggerating for, uh, you know, <laughs> sort of effect. limp comedic <laughs> effect there. But I think that, uh, it, you know, it's a funny thing because as a speech writer, um, when I was working for Gore, uh, he used to like to quote the Bible here and there. And I actually developed a few contacts. Um, I can't remember if they were people I met through Gore or people I sort of brought to the table through other connections who were pastors and sort of religious thinkers who I would call for, you know, to can you recommend a, a, a biblical passage for this eulogy or for this, you know, prayer breakfast speech that I have to write? And... Um, the emotion and the sentiment and the sort of drama of it, if you will, always appealed to me. Yeah. I, I, there's a lot of power in it. Um, and, uh, you know, I also, uh, I don't know, I, you know, I'm also aware that there are a lot of bad things done in the name yeah. of organized religion. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, no, I'm, I guess I asked more, um, not even organized religion, just, just kind of spirituality of like some kind of, especially as a writer, you know, you're a great writer, you're, you know, you're an artist and, and I know you're very pragmatic as well. 
Yeah, um, I don't think but, of myself but, as an artist, by the way. I, 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 maybe I should try. I just think of myself kind of as a craftsman. I don't know. Yeah, maybe well, you, to are, me, you are a craftsman, but I wonder, you know, I wonder if like, I don't know. It's interesting. Like the, the I'm just thinking on the spot here of, of like, whatever it is that next thing is for you, it, it's like, maybe there's something that's like, you're always going to have your craft. I mean, you're always going to be able to build the house because you're like, you, you had the greatest teachers. You are a craftsman. You're very specific. I wonder if there's like some, you know, you should go. Yeah. You have the structure inherently in your DNA. I almost wonder if you should just throw yourself into something that's like a, just mysterious to you, mysterious yeah. for you, where you don't, you're not thinking about like, well, what about the licensing and the, this and the that? And, and it's no, like you're, you're not wrong. Gonna, you know you're not I mean? wrong. And it's funny thing because on a smaller level, um, you know, I've written a couple, you know, scripts uh, <clears throat> about politics set in that world because I know that world. But some of the best writing experiences I've had have been things that were wholly unfamiliar to me when I started. That- and then you learn and then you sort of, uh, you sort of, the energy of the learning goes onto the page, but I've never tried something that I didn't feel had that same sense of stakes and kind of overachieving characters that you can get in the political world. Um, see, I, wrote that's a, a, I, I would be really interested to see that. I'm sure it would throw you for a loop, but I almost, yeah. my, my instinct is that it would, it would pull out some, another gear in you that you haven't used yet. Like, it be, because, you know, that that's my one thing with uh, Sorkin, who is an amazing writer. And like, if you go back, you know, you know, the West Wing episodes in and out. I don't actually, I, I don't. don't. I, I oh, wish do? I did. Okay. It's so funny because, you know, our friend uh, Josh, Josh Molina has this yeah. podcast, um, which is great. I've only listened to one of them. I loved it. He, it's really it's, fun. It's I, I've listened to a handful of them. You've um, done some of them. I've right? done a few of them. And and um, but but. You know, I've had to prepare like, you know, they'll have me on and you have to watch the episode. And it's such a time warp. And I remember things that I haven't thought about since because I have not watched that show, maybe one or two episodes to show to somebody since it went off the air. So, yeah. so the fans of the show and in fact, even uh, Rishi, the co-host of the podcast, he can cite lines and moments yeah. and things. I can't do any of that. Well, here's what I was going to say, though. So so Sorkin does such a great job of, you know. Boom, boom, boom. He moves the pace, moves the pace, and then he gives you breath and you get this emotion. And he's, he's an incredible writer. Yeah. Sometimes I I find with him, you know, there are times when you go like, I want to see Aaron Sorkin do something that I cannot tell is Aaron Sorkin. You know, maybe he's done it and sure. I'm just not aware of it. No, I don't think you so. Know? And I, I think and I he's think got a very recognizable he, He's got a recognizable stamp. thing. And it would be, in, you know, that's, I guess that's what I'm saying is like, you know, you you've got, this one thing that you've got down and then you go, okay, well, let's, let's jump in some completely new water and not know where we're going and we figure it out. And I wonder what, I wonder what you find there. I wonder, I don't know. Well, you know, the thing I would say about that is that, look, um, there are very few writers, very few screenwriters where if you show somebody a four minute, section of a movie or a TV show, they could possibly identify the style as yours, right? I mean, Aaron Sorkin, you know, he may be the most famous screenwriter by name 
anyway. Yeah. But he's, I think he has almost the most recognizable style for people who follow such yeah. things. I well, mean, he and Mamet, I think, have a you Mamet, know, similar way. Um, you know, maybe you could say there's something similar about the Cohn brothers, though they vary their styles a lot. Yeah. But I guess what I'm saying is so few, m- most working writers, they do bounce all over the place and try different things. And, to, you know, and I guess, I, you know, I've been very lucky in terms of working on shows and getting people to, you know, sort of um, hire me and give me deals and things. But uh, I'm, I still haven't really created, I have not created something of my own. And if I could just have a recognizable style and stick with that, that would be amazing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'll settle for that. Uh, you know my work better because we're friends and we've worked together. But um, the world, I think, still, you know, associates me with these TV shows I've worked on, which are great and which I'm very proud of what I did. But I'd love to get to the point where I just had a signature that people recognized that I could deviate from. Yeah. Yeah, that you could, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's the next phase. But I see what you're saying. And as I sit here trying to contemplate, you know, what script I should write next, original script I should write next. Uh, I'm in a deal right now at ABC Studios and, and they'll be looking to me for some material. Uh, I, I think about that all the time. Go with your strength, go with what you know, or challenge yourself and struggle in the process. Yeah. And, and look, I don't know the answer. We'll, we'll have you back after you have, you know, the next, yeah. the, the next. I'll tell you Sopranos. what I did. Uh, I better be in it. Uh, no, we, we have, uh, you know, I hope for the people listening, um, you know, we kind of deviated into some specific uh, story talk and, and I hope everybody appreciated it. It's a little, a little different than kind of, uh, you know, but it, it is. What do they is. normally like? No, I don't know. I, we kind of go I mean, all over. Some, no, we kind of go all over. If you think there's, you know, wherever or... it's going to go. Um, but you know, in keeping with that ten thousand nos, but really, yeah. I, th- I feel like this actually is the the kind of. If you're listening to this, this is kind of what it is that the war. You know, batting up against. I mean, here yeah, you are, this sure. successful extremely successful writer here and you're going, okay, what's next? I mean, in a way, this is a no that will, it's not really a no necessarily, but it's a bit of a wall, which is what's next? Where do I want to go? Do I go with the tried and true? Do I go with something new? Do I go, you know, that's, that's the gig in a way. Yeah. And I, you know, it's funny thing. It's, it's nice to hear, but I don't feel extremely successful. I feel, I feel fortunate. Uh, I've worked nonstop, you know, since first coming out here to work for Aaron on the West Wing. I've always had jobs on shows or development deals, you know, or both. Um, but I, I I still haven't, I still want to make my statement to the world. You know, I still want to create something wholly original that, that, that is my sensibility. And, and I don't know what that is or will be, but, but, you know, it's funny. I always find it interesting. People's perceptions of your career are always different than your career. Oh, you know, I, I have a lot, you know, it's very flattering, but sometimes people, you know, they think, oh, you know, I get emailed by people on Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, uh, you know, like I'm a titan in the industry, which I don't consider myself at all. You know, I consider myself just a kind of a guy who's bumbling around. You know? Yeah. I mean, I guess that's, I, I can totally identify with that. Um, but I think in this industry for you to say, you know, you've, you have worked nonstop that right there is a success, but I know what you're saying. And I yeah. think what we're having this this conversation and kind of my thoughts with you, um, which, you know, I didn't intend to get into in a, in a public forum, but it's like, I, I think that's the exact thing, which is when you will 
you know, I hate to use the, it will, well, we'll go to spirituality, we'll go to Joseph Campbell and that kind of, sure. you know, that, that hero's journey. It's almost like, I think this is your, you know, use the force Luke moment where you've, you've done everything. You, you know, it in this world, I think you got to use the force. I think you, I think you got something in you that you don't even, you're not even aware of it. I think that's the, whatever the thing you're is. You're definitely that right put, that I'm not put, aware of it. hundred <laughs> percent right about no, that. No, but I think there's no, something I, I appreciate in there that, that, that is, that like needs to be like, yeah. Jug loose. Maybe well, you know, it's, it's a funny conversation. Thing. Maybe it's something. Yeah. I don't know, but, but there's it's, something. It's, it's a funny thing because, you know, one of the things you do when you're in my position and you're sort of working writer is that you very often you team up with producers or a director or something to work on a project. Um, and, you know, I've had a, a number of those experiences in the last few years and some have been not that positive, you know, because some are, are just people who have their own taste and they just want to kind of ram things down your throat or they're very disengaged or they're working on 10 projects and you don't get their real focus. But once or twice, I've worked with really great producers who are not, even head writers of TV shows can be like this, where some, like John Wells, who we both worked for, is a unique, gifted showrunner who will say to you as the writer working for him, he's not interested in his own taste. I mean, he's a guy with wonderful taste and super talented writer, but he looks at you and he says, here's the story I think you're trying to tell. And here's how you can tell it better. You know, people who who are good at bringing things out of you. And um, one of the things I, I always look for is, is there a producer? Is there somebody out there I can team up with? And by the way, I would team up with John Wells tomorrow. We're just not, we're at Rival Studios at the moment. Uh, if you're listening, John, <laughs> he knows this. I've said this to him many times. But but uh, somebody like that who can who can do what you're saying, can sort of look at you and sort of realize, here's how to challenge you a bit. Here's how to push you to get the best work out of you. It's a gift. That's like producing as an art. Yeah. Uh, and not a lot of people can do it. Not a lot of people do do it. But, but uh, yeah, that's what we best, all pine for. The best for. ones are the... Um you I'm know, sure even ones, Aaron Sorkin pines for that, it, you know? They, they, yeah, yeah. They pull it out. They, they, as gifted as he is, he he probably needs uh, Scott Rudin or Amy Pascal to just occasionally give him a challenging, or to call him and say, I think you should direct, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or whatever it is, somebody to sort of say, I think you can do more than you're doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Somebody to uh, to let you find your unique gift and, and pull it out and uh, not to try to now look I get it I, I get what people are doing people are are trying to um, you know in a lot of ways what happens I think is because people are earning a living doing this they're trying yeah. to hedge bets and and you know make smart decisions and they're they're more fear-based decisions sometimes and and the ones that really rock the world I think the ones that really have impact, are the ones that say like, no, F this, like, let's do, let's, let's do something crazy. Let's do something that's, that's, you know, I mean, on those guys, well, on you know, Sopranos, they all, they sure. all told me, they said that, and, and you know, I think it's common knowledge too. You, they thought they didn't realize that that pilot, yeah. when they were shooting it, they didn't think it was going to get picked sure. up. They did not think it was going to get picked up. Sure. They were like, who's going to watch a a show that takes place in New Jersey about, they thought it was about singer, you know, like you hear Sopranos. Yeah, sure. Like nobody's oh, I remember hearing that name and thinking, you know, what a horrible name for a TV show. 
but it, you know, lost. I mean, look at lost. I, I wasn't a huge watcher. I've seen some episodes, but that they kind of like turn things on its head. Well, you know, my, one of my agents was a great guy, wonderful agent. Uh, a few years ago, maybe four years ago now, whenever it was the first TV pilot I wrote, which was a kind of an odd black comedic thing for Showtime that they did not make as a pilot, but uh, that I, you know, worked really hard on and had gotten a lot of good feedback on from a lot of people. Uh, I guess it was when they passed on that, that my agent said, probably, you know, I was in, I was a bit, you know, dejected. And he said, you know, your job is not to get a TV show on the air. And I said, excuse me, I thought that was actually very specifically my job. And he said, no, because it's, there are too many factors out of your control, you know, and I, the concept, they change their mind, they don't want that concept or they, you know, and he said, your job is to write a great piece of material every time you write something. And if you do that, then whether it gets on the air or not, your career will take care of itself. And I thought that was such profound advice. And about a year later, uh, I was on the phone with my agent in some other context. And I said, well, it's like what you, what you say. And he said, what do I say? And I repeated that to him. And there was a long pause on the phone. And he said, I said that? That's really smart. So it turns out it was actually just something he said to cheer me up in the moment and not yeah. something. So I've you told about me that, that a lot. Before. I mean, you, you've actually told me that. But before. I actually so have I'm, taken I'm that like... advice to heart. Uh, yeah. And, and it's cert- that's certainly my goal. And I think there's I've, a couple times, you know, looking back, there's a couple things I've written that I don't feel that way about. But most of the things I've written that have been original, even if they haven't been made, I've, I've poured enough of myself into it that at the end of the day, okay. You feel like, I, yeah, I, I showed up and I yeah, did. Yeah, that's, that's what it was. And, uh, and, you know, and often you, it gets you the next job anyway. That's what auditions are. You know, you go in, you're right. not going to necessarily get yeah. that one, but they might want a chubby know, blonde you and end up getting it's not going to be you, but then they think, oh, remember that guy? Yeah, exactly. All the time. Yeah, that happens. Well, listen, I, I mean, Thank you so much. Great for pleasure. Coming here. I Great didn't mean pleasure. to take up oh, no, no. You know, this much of your time, but it's, we kind of got it's, into it. It's, we, we it's, got, it's been fun. People will be coming back to this when your, I, your I, new show is, yeah. is out there and changing the world. It's uh, it's really it's a pleure to, to have you. Even, Great I, it's pleasure to nice be here. It's nice to see you. As and, always. Uh, I appreciate it. And I think people will get a lot out of this. Two, uh, Eli two scruffy Addy. guys oh, oh, on the west know. side. What's, what's the name of, uh, what, like, where can people, what's the name of the Shonda show that you're doing now? Oh, so I, I just spent about uh, six, seven months on a show that's called For the People that's going to be on ABC in March. Um, and uh, I think the premiere date is March 13th. March 13th. Okay. But, you know. And you're working with uh, Tom Verica. That's right. I know. That's and Ben right. Shankman. Yes, indeed. Yes, yeah. indeed. Good bunch of folks. Um, looking forward to it. All right, Eli Addy, everybody. Thank you very much for being pleasure. here, brother. Thanks again for listening to 10,000 Knows. If you haven't subscribed to us yet, please do. So each week's episode is automatically downloaded to your computer or phone. And if you like what you heard, please help us get the word out by sharing it with your friends and family. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.